The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We're going to save our last song for the morning to the very end. We want to go to the scriptures now. So Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse number 11. Just a reminder again, there is a note sheet in your bulletin there, this bright yellow colored one, and you can follow along with that as we go. I've put some of the verses there for you to read to say if you're looking them all up, and there are a couple that we will actually turn to, and I'll let you know as we go along. Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The Bible says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's ask for God's blessing again. Loving Father, it is our prayer this morning as we open the scriptures and we would dare to speak for you. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in everything we do and everything we say. And Father, we pray that you would take the verses of scripture and you would use them like sharpened arrows from your bow to our hearts. That we would hear what you would say to us in the depths of our soul. That you would impart to us the faith to believe and the strength to obey the things that we hear. Father, you know every single situation in this room. You know the hurts, the struggles, the fears, the doubts. Father, you know those who are walking with you in joy and rejoicing. And you know, Father, those who are not walking in obedience at all. Father, we cry out to you that you would minister to every heart according to its need. And we would hear and obey what you would say to us. Father, we ask again that my voice would fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but that your voice would ring loud and clear into every heart and mind in the room. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We've said before that Luke's message in both books of Luke and Acts is God's salvation is available for all the nations through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to all who will repent of sin and believe the gospel. Luke's purpose in writing is to give the reader the assurance and certainty of the things they have heard and have been taught. His first century readers had heard about Christ's death and life and his resurrection. They'd heard about and received the gift of the Holy Spirit as they had come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. They'd heard the command to make disciples as you're going. And they heard to earnestly wait for and expect expect Christ's to return. Perhaps they began to experience some opposition and some persecution for their faith. And perhaps they had begun to doubt the things they had heard. And so Luke picks up his pen and writes with a purpose to give the reassurance that those things they have heard and been taught are true. He says to give the certainty of those things. The great assurance that we have, the greatest assurance that we have is that God is faithful to keep his promises. We think about all the promises we've heard of God through the scriptures, the promises made to us. The promises made that were fulfilled in the New Testament. We can see the faithfulness of God and the greatest assurance we can have in those times of darkness and difficulty and the struggles of life is that God is faithful to keep his promises. Well, why do we need to hear this message today? How shall we glorify God from this text? In a way, we've sort of answered it already that God is faithful But in what particular way is our God faithful and how do we see it from this text? God is faithful to keep his promises so that we will have all that we need to live this life of witness to Christ's resurrection and God's salvation for all the nations. The disciples have walked with and talked with Jesus Christ. They've seen him perform miracles and work wonders and signs. They heard him preach the gospel and now... Having suffered and died and risen again, they hear that he is returning to heaven. And so they're now gathering and they're waiting to see what God is going to do. Ah, there it is. When you put page number three in front of page number two, it it doesn't work anywhere near as well. They had heard that he that they will continue his ministry or he will continue his ministry from heaven through the Holy Spirit and by them. Now, you have to ask yourself, you know, wouldn't it have been easier for Christ to simply stay here and continue himself in his physical presence to gather disciples and gather them from all over the nations? Surely it wouldn't be hard to gather many disciples if Jesus himself were here physically doing it. But the reality is that would be easier, but it would be completely without the necessity for faith in God. And Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in God to keep his promises glorifies God greatly. So our Lord Jesus renews and keeps his father's promise to send the Holy Spirit so that they and we will have all that we need to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Where is the power to live the Christian life to be found? 
Where do we find the power to live as witnesses to Christ's resurrection and God's salvation? How are they and how are we going to do that? Because at times we feel very much on our own, do we not? But the reality is we're not, of course, on our own. Why do some of us struggle so much to live the Christian life? Why do some of us struggle so much to witness to Christ? Perhaps it is. It's possible that we have not truly trusted that God has and is keeping his promises. It's one thing to believe it in your head. Wanting to believe that God keeps promises when it becomes a theoretical issue. But it's a whole different story to sit in a hospital room or sit in a doctor's office or sit in a place where all your world seems to be collapsing around you. And in those moments to hang on with a grip of death. To the fact that God is faithful to keep his promises. The power for this Christian life is from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Who was given to us in fulfillment of God's promises in both the Old and the New Testament. Jesus is what he's doing in this passage is he's preparing his disciples for his continuing ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ, our compassionate teacher and master of the disciples, does not send them to live as his witnesses, making disciples as they're going, without first spending some time with them to prepare them. I want you to notice in verses 4 to 11 the significant actions of Christ in our text. In verse 4 he says, Jesus orders them to wait in Jerusalem. And then in verse 5 it says that Jesus promises them the baptism with the Holy Spirit. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus responds to the question regarding the kingdom of God. And then in verse 8, Jesus promises them again the power that will come when the Spirit of God has come upon them. He also promises in verse 8 that they will be his witnesses. And then in verse 9 and 10, Jesus ascends to glory. And in verse 11... Through the mouth of two angels, Jesus promises them that he will return in person. Now, I want us to see this morning that there are two great promises to prepare us for a life of witnesses. I mentioned four times that Jesus promised in that text. But in actual fact, we can say there are really only two promises. And two of those promises are actually implications or results of the first promise. So we could say this in verse five. They were they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the first promise. And that's the abiding presence of God with them, indwelling them. And then there's two results that follow on from that promise. In verse seven, they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes or sorry, verse eight. And then verse eight again, they will be his witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. So those two results are connected to the first promise. And then the second great promise, of course, is that Jesus will return the same way that he went. Now, I was hoping to get through both of those or all four of those statements, but I think we'll just look at the first three. The one promise of the Spirit and the two results, the power that would come on them and that they would be his witnesses. The encouragement for our faith and how are we going to build that encouragement? We see it from looking at past examples of how God keeps his promises. We look at past Uh, Examples of God's faithfulness. Now, I want you to take your Bible and we'll look at Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. So flip back in your Bible, Luke chapter 4, 
And we're going to read verses 16 and 21. There are so many examples in Luke's gospel that we could look at and show how God is faithful to keep his promises. But for sake of time, we'll just look at two. And they're significant ones. Luke 4, verses 16 and 21. little interesting point. I didn't notice this until yesterday looking through my Bible. This is the first time that Luke is going to record Jesus actually speaking. Everything up until now is describing what's happening, but Jesus has no recorded words until this point. And look what he says. Luke 4 and verse 16. I had Luke 16 and verse 4, which doesn't work. Luke 4 and verse 16, the Bible says this. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he read this, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to recover, or sorry, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is reading the words of Isaiah the prophet, written in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Those prophecies have been given some 800 plus years prior to this. And Jesus reads these words and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke's readers, they can stop and they can read Luke's words and flip back over and find Isaiah and read the promise there. And they can see how Jesus is fulfilling the promises that God gave to his people. Second example is this that's in your note sheet. Luke 22 verses 37. It said this. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Notice that statement. What is written about me, it has its fulfillment. In other words, he's saying God is absolutely faithful. He will keep his promises. And we can look through the Bible and we can see all kinds, multitudes of promises about the Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, about his suffering his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus is saying, those scriptures are fulfilled in me. Listen, a lot of us struggle with doubts at time. Don't doubt the promise-keeping power of God Almighty. Remember Zechariah? It's the first story in Luke's Gospel. It's very significant. You know what he does? An angel comes to Zechariah, meets him as he's offering up the incense offering on the altar of incense inside the temple. And he sees the vision of Gabriel there. And Gabriel speaks to him and gives him promises. And what does Zechariah do? He doubts. Gabriel says, okay, well, for the next nine plus months, your mouth is shut and you won't be able to speak. And Gabriel goes again to another person, to Mary, and he tells her about the fact that she will give birth to the Messiah, and she believes. <coughs> Excuse me. And so she sings and rejoices in God, her Savior. She hears the promise, and she believes. And I think there is an implied warning from Luke as he's writing to those who are struggling with doubts. 
Don't doubt the promise-keeping power of God Almighty. He will keep His promises. Be encouraged. There's reason to not... There's no reason to doubt God. He is faithful. God always keeps His promises. Now I want us to notice the first great promise in the text that Jesus gives the disciples to prepare them for their life of ministry. In verses 4 and 5, He promises them the Holy Spirit. Let's read it again. It says in verse 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 1, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now I want you to notice also that the Old Testament witnesses to Jesus' promise. This isn't something brand new. It's something that the Father had promised his people centuries earlier. So take your Bible, stick your finger in the book of Acts, and flip all the way back over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. I'll give you a second to find it. And we're going to read verses 26 to verse 29. Beginning at verse 26. It says, Now two men remained in the camp. One named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they were prophesying, or they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, this is verse 29, this is the important piece. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Moses' desire all the way back in the Old Testament as the people of Israel are wandering around the wilderness and he hears about some men prophesying because the Spirit of God has come upon them and his desire is not just that a few here and there would prophesy, but the Lord's Spirit would rest on all the people and all of them would prophesy and speak as God gave them utterance. His desire was that all God's people would do so. Ezekiel 39, verse 29, it's on your note sheet. And God is speaking and He says, And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And then there's Joel 2, verse 28. And this passage comes up in Acts chapter 2 as uh, Peter stands to give an explanation of what's happening on Pentecost morning. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass afterward, That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Then Luke. He picks up the role here. You've got to remember something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like the last of the Old Testament style of prophets. He's the last prophet, as Jesus said, the last and the greatest of them. And in Luke 3.16, he says this. John answered them all, saying... I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
One of God's new covenant promises is the filling of the Holy Spirit in his people. God promised his Holy Spirit through the mouths of his prophets. He promised always came in the context of these last days. And I'll explain that in a second. In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus himself says this. It's on your note sheet. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus Himself is promising that the Father would give the Holy Spirit. Now you go to Acts chapter 2, and almost immediately you can see the answer there, or even Acts chapter 1, 2. There is an immediate fulfillment of that. The church gathers the the group of people, disciples, gather in the upper room. And what are they doing? The Bible says they are devoting themselves to prayer. And you have to ask, why are they praying about? And I'm almost convinced that what they're praying about is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus had promised them. In fact, they are there in Jerusalem, in that upper room, waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And they're devoting themselves to prayer. So I don't think it's rocket science to say... They were praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it came in the midst of a prayer meeting. I can add this, a little side note for us. Read that verse again. Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We present day believers can also pray and listen carefully what I'm saying here. For a great increase in influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I did not say pray for a second baptism or a second blessing or something like that. That's not in scripture. But we do know from Ephesians 5.18, which we looked at last year, about how we are to be constantly filled with the Spirit of God. And what that's, like I said before, it's a passive noun, a passive verb. It means we are to receive an action from somebody else. And I'm absolutely convinced, brothers and sisters, that we should, as believers in Jesus Christ, be praying for an increase in the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. So that sin is being put away. So that we are walking in closer and tighter and more loving obedience to our Father as as His influence in us is increased. But the point I want to make, back to the main point here, is that Jesus promised the Father would give them the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 4 through 8, Jesus promised that the Spirit would come shortly afterwards. Now take your Bibles and flip over one page to Acts 2, verses 32 and 33. We're going to see this promise was kept. In case you haven't figured out yet, what I'm trying to get you to see is... God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. In this particular case, God promised the Holy Spirit and God kept that promise. Acts 2, verses 32 and 33. Yeah. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter speaking. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God kept his promise. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, God always keeps his promises. But you have to ask the question. You go back to the context of Acts chapter 1. 
He's preparing his disciples for their life of witness and ministry. What's so important? I mean, we understand why he made such a big deal and spent so much time talking about his resurrection and proving to them in so many ways why he had to be raised and the reality of his resurrection. But now it's something else. He proved his resurrection and now he promises the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? Notice the context of Jesus' words. Okay, let's read again, verses 6 and 7. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the rest of the verse. The kingdom of God is a very key point here. Back in Acts 1-3, he has been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, for them, in their minds, was the earthly kingdom of Israel over the Gentile nation with David's son on the throne. But for the longest time I thought, Jesus just kind of brushes aside their words and goes on to something completely different. But in actual fact, he's not. He's actually answering their words. He's setting aside and he's giving them a bigger picture answer. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is evidence of the kingdom of God that has come. That's inaugurated in Christ. Peter, you have those two verses in your note sheet. Peter on Pentecost morning quotes Joel 2.28. He says there, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so on. If you look back up your note sheet to find Joel 2.28, you're going to read something very slightly different. In Joel 2.28, he says, and afterward it shall be. So you say, what happened? Well, very simply, God the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to take the word afterward out and put in the word in these last days or in the last days. You say, what's so significant about the words in the last days? In the Jewish culture, those words were highly significant. Because they spoke about and talked about the period of time after the Messiah had come. It was the very end. It was the beginning of the end of all of God's working and planning amongst his people. So when Peter says, in these last days, God is pouring out his spirit. What he's doing is he's connecting the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all these new believers with the kingdom of God. So when they ask him about the kingdom, he isn't dismissing their their question at all. He's showing them a much bigger, much broader perspective about the kingdom of God. It means the kingdom of God is inaugurated. The last days have begun. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in Matthew 28, has received authority in heaven and on earth. All of it. And Jesus Christ is about to ascend in glory back up to his father and be seated on his father's right heaven, right hand on his throne in heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from on high. He is indeed our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And the kingdom of God is best understood as Christ's rule and reign in the hearts and lives of all his people. And that's the point in the context of Acts 1, 4 through 8. You say, okay, I get it, the kingdom of God, but how does that practically work with us? Well, it's huge. 
What it means is for disciples past and present receiving the Holy Spirit is evidence to them and us that we have been included in the kingdom of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the mark, the seal, the proof of Christ's rule over me in my life. The promise of the poured out Holy Spirit fulfilled on Pentecost morning for them and then fulfilled the moment of conversion from everybody else after that is the mark we receive. The sealing with the Holy Spirit is the burned brand mark, if you like, that we have submitted to Christ's rule and reign over us. We belong to the kingdom of God. If there is no Holy Spirit present within us, there is no genuine proof of salvation. No proof whatsoever of entrance into God's kingdom. So that Peter's saying, or the, the disciples are saying, are you going to put the kingdom back in Israel? And Jesus says, hey, step back a bit, guys. There's something so much bigger happening here. The kingdom of God is going to be God's rule and reign in the lives of all his people. And as you go through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is more and more and a wider and wider variety of people are being included in the kingdom. His very next words. Look what he says. Verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which means Australia, right? All the way around. So the kingdom of God isn't just one small thing in one small place. It is God's rule and reign over all his people, all worldwide. The proof of salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us that marks us as included in God's kingdom. The book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to Christ. So that branding mark of the spirit shows that they are his. They're his disciples. They're his subjects as part of that kingdom. Christ is preparing the disciples for their life as witnesses to his resurrection and God's salvation in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And it's absolutely essential that they and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the gift fulfills God's Old Testament promises, but also fulfills Jesus' promises to us in John 14 and 16 and Luke 24. And Luke's words are reassurance to us of the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our life as witnesses. We who have come to Christ, hating our sin and believing God and repenting of our sin, have certainly received the indwelling Holy Spirit. For that not to happen is for God to break His promises. He cannot do that. He must. He always keeps His promises. You say, how do I know for sure the Spirit of God is in me? He produces all sorts of evidence and fruit. He shows us in change of life, change of character, things that we used to do that didn't bother us in the slightest. All of a sudden we do it and there's a powerful weight upon ourselves. Oh, we should not do that. There is a conviction of sin that the Spirit of God lays on our heart that I should not have done that. On another level. We're in God's Word and we're reading and all of a sudden the Word comes alive to us and a verse just leaps off the page at us and it has an impressive message and we hear what God is saying. Why is that? 
Because the Spirit of God who inspired the writing of His Scripture and is living in us, indwelling us, and as we're reading, He is saying, look at what I just said. It's there for you. And He begins to impress and mark His Word on our hearts and on our minds and compel us to action or reduce us to tears of repentance and and seeking forgiveness. The Spirit of God's coming is proof to us that we have indeed been included in God's kingdom, that we are part of Christ's company. We are saved and we have been bound together with Him. Well then, I want to look at two results that we can see in verse 8. And both of those results of the promise of the Holy Spirit are in the context of the coming of the Holy Spirit. First of all, Christ promised them and us power. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Don't make the mistake that the Jehovah's Witness make in some other groups. They will say that the Spirit of God is just a power, like electricity. Uh, You know the young fellow that comes and visits me fairly frequently from the Jehovah's Witness Church. And we keep talking about this. He keeps saying, no, 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 it's like electricity. He keeps pointing down at the plug on the wall. He says, no, it's it's just power. It's a force. That's not what it is at all. The Spirit of God is a person. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity. And what He does is He gives us power to live this life. Being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in John 3 and verse 5. Our assurance in our own hearts that we're truly born again is by the Holy Spirit's testimony to our own hearts. He takes and He speaks to us. In our hearts and says, you belong to Jesus Christ. You know, I can't remember much about the day that I came to know the Lord up on uh, Anvil Island Bible Camp in old. Remember Berea Cabin? Yep. My sister-in-law Diane is here. She's from Canada and she used to go to that camp as much as... I think you were at the camp right after I got saved in 1980. Yeah, 82 I think it was, yeah. And uh, in Berea Cabin. I don't remember much. But I remember a couple of things. I remember, first of all, there was an intense craving in my heart to read my Bible. And I also remember there was an amazing sense of peace. And you know what that is? That's the Spirit of God working in my heart, testifying that God has wrought a change in you. You are now filled with the Spirit of God. There's a desire, new desires, new interests, and old rejections of old desires. Being born again is a work of the Spirit. The assurance that we have is by the Spirit's testimony to our own hearts. Our life in Christ can only be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian, don't waste your time trying to live it in your own strength. You'll wind up in frustrating failure and you'll wind up in all kinds of difficulty. The reality is He has given His Spirit in us that we might live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16-26, that whole long passage there is all about living life in the Spirit. Romans 8, go home this afternoon, put on the air conditioner, sit right underneath it with a big glass of cold water, and open your Bible to Romans 8 and read through Romans 8. The old Puritans called it the Great Eight. Because it was so full of testimony about life in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Putting to death the deeds of the flesh is only by the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8.13. The life of holiness that God requires is only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can strive 
with rule after rule and idea after idea about how you're going to become holy before God. But listen, the reality is it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Time out for a sec. One of the tragedies about, I say this with great care and, and with respect for dear brothers and sisters in Christ, but one of the tragedies of the charismatic movement it is his has emphasized and distorted massively one idea about the Holy Spirit, the gifts, especially the sign gifts, and most often one of the group. And the reality is, as I was reading through Romans again, I read through the Romans, book of Romans about one every ten days. I read right through the Romans just to kind of get my head thoroughly soaked in the theology of Paul. And one of the things I picked up this time was there's so many more things about the power of the Spirit of God and the life of a believer than just speaking in tongues and that stuff. What about putting to death the deeds of the flesh? What about putting off sin? What about a life of holiness? What about self-control and the other fruits, or fruit I should say, of the Spirit of God? There's so much more to it. And the life of holiness, the life that we are called to live, Jesus says to them, you will receive power. And in the direct context, of course, he's speaking about their witness for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, around the world. He's speaking that context, of course. But in a bigger context and a less dramatic one, he is speaking about the power they have to live life. And we have to live life. A life of holiness is only possible by the power of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, bearing spiritual fruit demands the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Christ's great reassuring promise He gave them in Matthew 28 that He would never leave us or forsake us. How is He going to keep that promise? The presence of the indwelling Spirit of God in us. He'll never leave. He'll never forsake. We're never on our own. The things that God calls us to do, He is right there in us, with us, giving us the power and the strength to do them. Secondly, I want you to notice that Christ promised us that we would be His witnesses. One of the direct outflows and results of the coming of the Spirit of God in power is that we will be His witnesses. We said before that Luke is the beginning of Christ's ministry, Luke's Gospel, and Luke acts of... You know, Luke's book called Acts is the continuation of Christ's ministry. And that ministry can only be mediated through the Holy Spirit. As you read through the book of Acts, look often how often Luke records that the Spirit of God guided and led and showed them and directed them. Or even that, the, that Jesus directed them through His Spirit as to where He would have them go and what He would have them do. Christ gave special ministry gifts to the church. And he exercised. The exercise of those gifts is under the leading and the control and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We saw those gifts in Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. And one of the things I do when I come here early on Sunday morning, and when we're in the prayer group back there, is pray that God's Spirit will be greatly, His influence will be greatly increased in me. So that as I speak and preach, it's not in my own power and in my own strength. One of my greatest fears is that I'll become an orator and stop being a preacher. You say, what's the difference? Massive difference. An orator speaks words, but a preacher 
opens his mouth and speaks the word of God under the power and the leading and the influence of the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, he's just an orator. He gives us the the Spirit of God that we might be his witnesses in whatever form that may be. Conviction of sin is only by the Holy Spirit's power. John 16 and verse 8. The teaching of the truth will only be as the Spirit of God is working in both teacher and listener. So if you come to our prayer meeting, and I encourage you strongly, if you don't come to church at 10 o'clock, come at 9.30, jump in that back room there with us and pray with us. One of the things we pray for is that God's Spirit will fill all the people in the church, preacher and people, all of us together, that we will all, me too, hear what God is saying to us. And that ministry is only going to happen as the Spirit of God has freedom to work and move and teach us and speak to our own hearts. Effective witness can only be as the Holy Spirit works in us and in them. The gift of the Holy Spirit is evidence that our genuine conversion, true repentance and true belief, the gift of the Holy Spirit glorifies God as faithful to keep his promises. Look at this church. Just turn your head and look around. Look at all the people in this church. Look where they came from. One of the things I love about our church, and it's a great church, and please don't be offended when I say this, all the different skin colors. You know why? Because God's Spirit is at work. God is faithful to keep His promises. From the far north of Canada to South Africa to Cambodia to the Eastern Europe, All over the world, God is working. The witness is going forth. God's keeping His promise. The gospel is going to all nations. The work of God, God is glorified as He keeps His promises. And one of the promises He made is that we will be His witnesses around the corner and around the world. So then, we have to ask, what was required of these 11 disciples? There's two things. Obedience and faith. Simple, isn't it? Old song we used to sing, trust and obey. If there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Absolutely true. They had to obey. Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there. And I can see some of the disciples going, you know, it's awfully hot in Jerusalem right now. The, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, all those people and all those Roman soldiers with really pointy spears, they don't like us. We'll just wait here out in Galilee. Or maybe we'll wait, you know, up north somewhere where nobody knows us. Maybe we'll just go somewhere else. No. Jesus said, you go back to Jerusalem, go up to the upper room and stay there and wait there. Don't go out and preach the gospel. Someone can say, hey, you know what? Let's get started. Why are we waiting for this? We can, we can maybe print up some tracts and hand them out. Maybe we can do some other things to do something about spreading the gospel for Jesus. And we'll wait and be busy while we're waiting, right? No. Jesus said, go up there and wait. They had to obey his command. They also had to trust God. As they went back to Jerusalem and sat up in that upper room and waited, and they devoted themselves to prayer, they had to trust that God was going to keep that promise. <clears throat> don't, wow, it's ringing. don't forget the, the context. From Malachi to John the Baptist is 400 plus years. John the Baptist comes and speaks for God. Jesus comes and speaks for God. They crucify him. He raises again. 
But you know what? There's all that silence. And they could easily say, you know, God was so slow to keep his promises. How do we know he's going to keep his promises at this time? But they go back. And in obedience to God, they must go and wait. And in faith, they pray and they devote themselves to prayer and wait for God's Holy Spirit to come. Listen. Those men were no different in their human nature than you and I. Yes, they were apostles. And yes, they had a special ministry in connection with seeing the risen Christ and speaking with him and so on. Yes, they had a special ministry to write and speak scripture. And yes, some of them even raised the dead. But listen, that was the spirit of God in them, not them themselves. Their human nature was just the same as ours. And God who worked through them can work through us. The problem is somehow in our minds we make a mental switch and say, well, they were apostles. We can't go there. They're they're special people. They were Peter the fisherman, foot and mouth disease all the time, right? They're all these young guys. They weren't very old. They weren't old men. Some of the classic paintings of the disciples as long, gray-haired, you know, gray-bearded men. When they started, they were probably late teens, early 20s. Young men. And God sent them out to work, but he gave them his Holy Spirit. And what gave them the power to minister and be witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, suffering and dying. Ten out of the eleven disciples died a violent death for their faith in Christ. They were ordinary men just like you and I. But they were filled with God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit in them was the same Spirit we have in us. They had boldness to witness publicly. Why? Because they were special? No, because they had the Spirit of God in them. They had boldness to stand against opposition. They had the strength to endure the punishment, the suffering that was inflicted upon them for their witness to Christ. Why? Because they were a special breed of men? No. Because they were men filled with the Spirit of God. Yes, they had a special ministry. No, that ministry is not present today. Apostolic ministry ceased when the last of them died off. But the Spirit of God is still filling His people to give us the power to live the life and witness for Christ. They had the same struggles we had and so on. What's required of us? Right? Obedience to God's command. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's trust and obey. God commands all men to repent, to turn away from sin. God commands us to believe the good news. So we must obey. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I don't like the idea of preaching the gospel as a brightly packaged gift that you can take or receive as you so desire. I don't like it because it distorts what's actually happening. God commands us to repent and believe the gospel. It is not an option. Because disobedience to that command merits the greatest judgment of all. Eternity in hell. And so yes, salvation is a gift of God. Yes, it's the greatest gift any man can ever receive. But it's a gift that we are commanded to receive. And disobedience to that command results in God's judgment on us. For eternity. 
So we must obey. We must repent and believe the gospel. We must commit ourselves fully to Christ in faith and obedience. If you got a chance, you can in the bulletin there, I put an article on what faith truly is. You can have a read to that later on. I'll just give you some explanation. But listen to this. We must obey, picking up our cross every day, which means we die to sin, we die to self, and we die to the world. And what that means is we simply separate ourselves from it. And by dying to sin and dying to self and dying to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are removing the hindrances of God's Spirit from working in our lives. I'll give you a repeat illustration. Sorry, I can't think of a different one, but it works. Uh, we were at Amadeen Bible Camp, and I've told you before, and one of the games we used to play was a big spotlight game with this great big round spotlight, right? And my friend Deb would get up on this great big high tower out in the middle of the, the, the field. <laughs> Diana remembers the game. And uh, in the pitch black, full of trees and stumps and twigs and rocks, we sent 120 little kids this big running through the bush in the pitch black of night. Like, not black like city darkness, I mean black like bush darkness where it's pitch, pitch black. And these kids would run through the trees, right, and trip over things and break legs and arms and cut up their heads and all kinds of stuff. And what she had to do was she had to have a spotlight and she would spin the thing around up on there and she would find a kid and zone in on, there's Con, right? And once she got him, she'd scream, I gotcha. And one of the other leaders would run out and we'd take a felt marker and we'd put a mark right on his head. And he had to go back to the starting base and, and start again. It was a great game. But you imagine for a second if up there in the thing she had some cloths, some clothing, and every once in a while she took a piece of clothing and just laid it over the lens of that great big spotlight. What would happen to the brightness of the light? Go down, right? You had one piece of cloth, another piece of cloth, another piece of cloth, another piece of cloth. Pretty soon all you got is this dim glow around the edges. Is the light any less bright? No. Is light just as powerful as it was always? Yes, absolutely. But our sin is just like those pieces of cloth. And our sin hinders the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts to convict us of sin and teach us the truth and show us the way and lead us the way. And one of the reasons why Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The taking up of that cross isn't a literal wooden thing that he would drag around behind him like you see some people on the street once in a while. What it means is die. Die every day. Separate yourself from the sin that hinders you. Separate yourself from the influence of the world that will drag you down and will hinder the Spirit of God from working in your life. So what's required of us? It's obedience, number one. And number two, it is faith. We trust God. How do we build that faith? How do we strengthen that faith? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Right? How do we build that faith? How do we strengthen it? We read those scriptures. The Spirit of God in us, as we read, begins to take those scriptures and apply them to our hearts. And as we fill our minds and our hearts with Scripture, He takes that Scripture and works it from head all the way down to heart and out to hands and feet. And faith is built and strengthened. And God is just like a father with a little child. I've told you before. He starts off, the little kid starts to walk. And Dad puts out his hands. Come on, walk to Daddy, right? And his hands are about this far away from the little guy's hands. 
I remember my kids doing this. It was great. And they, you know, you know. And all of a sudden, they'd sort of take one faltering step, and then he would take their hands. And priests priest would back up two steps, and they'd take two steps, and they'd grab their hands. It's exactly the same way as we walk by faith with God. He says, trust me, and step out. And he puts out his hand and says, come to daddy. And we put out our hands and we stumble and stagger. And every once in a while we go down and flatten our faces. And then he picks us up and dusts us off and says, now try it again. And God won't ask you to go to a missionary to the darkest part of Africa or the worst part of New York City tomorrow. But he may ask you to do one thing to trust him. And the power of the Spirit of God in us gives us the faith to believe and enables us to step out in obedience and follow Christ that one simple step. And one step leads to four, which leads to 40, which leads to 400. And before you know it, you've been walking with the Lord for a lifetime. And when you first came to know Christ, you thought you know so much about Christ. And after 40 years of walking with Jesus, you realize you know so much more and you knew hardly anything. And he is indeed your best friend. We trust God to keep his promises. These disciples had to do the exact same thing. He provides us with the power to live the life that pleases him. He provides us with the power to exercise the ministry that he has given to us. There's so much more I could say, but you know what? I think I'm just going to leave it there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is faithful. You sit down beside one of these dear older saints. I'll let you decide who's the older ones and who's the younger ones. And you ask them to tell you about their life of faith. You ask them to tell you what it's like to walk with the Lord for 50 years or 40 years or 30 years. And they will explain to you what it means to walk side by side with the Lord. And they'll encourage your hearts as you hear their stories. God is faithful. He kept His promises to them. And God will keep His promises to you. He promised the disciples, you will need power. And you're going to give it to you when the Spirit of God comes. You're going to be my witnesses. You cannot do it on your own. The Spirit of God will come. And there's one more promise He gave. I'm just going to mention it and then we'll close. They're standing there looking up. You can imagine these guys standing around looking up, you know. Clouds are parting. Jesus disappears. I can see the clouds sort of drifting back together. And they're standing staring up into heaven. And I, often, I wonder if they weren't thinking, you know, he'll be back any minute. He's just gone for a second. He's coming back. And the angels appear and they stand beside him. Two men. Two angels. Two witnesses. That's striking. He uses two witnesses and two angels over and over again. Why do you stand looking into heaven, men? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12, we didn't read it before. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And one somewhere it says they returned rejoicing. And now, of course, I can't find it. Never mind. Why would they be rejoicing? They returned rejoicing because they saw Jesus go up into heaven Human body, yes, truly God and truly man. It was a promise to them. If he will go like this, then one day we too will be resurrected. One day we too will be caught up to be with God. One day we too will have that great hope 
we have it now, but one day we'll see it realized. There's a great hope and a great promise for them that Jesus had gone up, but that he is coming back. That's our motivation to keep working. It's been 2,000 years. I noticed the other day that between the promise to Eve outside the garden to the coming of Christ is about 4,000 years. It may be 2,000 more years before Christ returns. It might be before we get home today. None of us know. And so what's the message for us? The message for us is this, that God has kept His promise. He has filled us with His Spirit. He's given us the power to live this life. And He's given us a ministry and a witness to perform. Brothers and sisters in Christ, get busy. Sadly, for so many Western Christians, we live life as if this is our Western privilege to enjoy faith in Christ and a church community. And Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday belongs to me. I'll give Sunday to the Lord, you know, but I'll live the way I like from my own purposes to my own financial increase and my own glory from Monday to Saturday. But I'll give the Lord Sunday. That is not what he had in mind. When he said, you will receive the Spirit and you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. What he meant, brothers and sisters, is not life and witness. He meant life as witness. Life as ministry. That going, as he said in Matthew 28, going, we are to make disciples of all the nations. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming back. We need to get busy. You got those little sheets in your bulletin, the little invites. It can be as simple as saying, hey, neighbor, we're having a barbecue at our church on Sunday. Why don't you come over? There's going to be a message of the good news of the gospel. We're going to do a a gospel message for Sunday, next Sunday morning to go with this. A shorter one, too. Invite them. If they ask what it's all about, tell them. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. You say, I'm so scared, I can't barely open my mouth. Well, here's my promise to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit of God has come upon you. That's a promise of Scripture. You will be my witnesses. You think, I can barely speak. I don't know how to even talk about that. Listen. God can use the stammering voice, small voice, and a simple testimony to change a person's life. It's not you that are saving them. It is not you that are charged to present the perfect message. It's your willingness to obey and step out in faith and open your mouth to speak about your Lord Jesus. And the Spirit of God will do the other 99.9999999% of the work. We have a great God, brothers and sisters. He's kept His promise and He's keeping His promise even still. Would you pray? Uh, stand with me. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing What Grace is Mine. So let's stand together and we'll pray. I'm get camera to. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we give you thanks, O oh God, that you are so faithful. You keep every promise that you make. Father, just reflecting again in in this moment on the truth of the covenants that you bind yourself in a covenant bond to keep your promises to your people. 
And Father, we think back to that moment so many years ago when Jesus stood on that hillside outside of Jerusalem and made those promises to his disciples that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that power they would have, that they would be his witnesses. And 12, 11 frightened men who ran away when he was arrested some days later were filled with the Spirit of God and walked out into Jerusalem streets and began preaching the gospel. And thousands were saved. Father, we thank you for the reality of the promise that in our conversion, we are sealed and branded with the Spirit of God in us. That the Spirit of God is giving us the power, it gives us the power to speak and to live for Christ. Father God, I pray, I cry out to you for our church. That we would be putting off sin in the power of the Spirit. That we would be devoting ourselves to the things of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would be going out and in stammering and weak and faulting voices, we would be proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ to a neighbor over the back fence, to a colleague at work, to a schoolmate, wherever we go. Father, we cry out to you that you would do your work through this church. Father, we cry out and pray again, O God, that you would bring revival into this church, that the love that we had for the Lord Jesus Christ when we first came to know him would be burning hot within us, that we would be putting off sin, removing the hindrances from the spirit of God's work and ministry in our own hearts, that we may may live lives that are pleasing to you, that our lives may be glorifying to you in everything we do and say. But, Father, that we also may be your witnesses, that our lives, our words, our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions would all be a testimony to the greatness of God who has called us out of darkness to walk in his light. Father, we ask you for your blessing. We give you thanks, O God, for the great salvation that we enjoy in the Lord Jesus. Father, for anyone in this room. And Lord, you know the hearts and minds of all your people. You know how and where every single person in this room stands. Father, I cry out to you that your spirit would give those who do not and have not repented of sin and do not trust you, that the spirit of God would give them no rest. That would bring great conviction of sin, but also Awaken them to see the wonder and the love of a Savior who died to save them. Father, for those who have made a profession of faith standing here in front of us, standing here with us together, they've made a profession of faith, but they're not living in a way that pleases you. Father, I cry out to you that the Spirit of God would minister the Word of God to their hearts, that they might turn back and follow again. Renew that love relationship between themselves and the Lord Jesus and walk closely with them. Father, we cry out to you for a work to be done in this church, in our own hearts. And Father, not just in this church, but also in the churches all over Noble Park and Keysborough and Dingley, right across the state of Victoria and around this nation. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that you would bring real biblical revival. That the church may be changed and cleansed and renewed and revived. That our message might be preached with power to the nations. The power of the Holy Spirit. 
that we would see thousands come to Christ. And Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.